Thank you for all coming back from your coffee break. Um, my name is Gavin Francis. Uh, I am a doctor working in general practice and in emergency medicine in Edinburgh. And I'm a writer of so far three books exploring different kinds of landscapes, physical landscapes, extreme landscapes, and also latterly landscapes of the human body. And um, when Sam invited me to come down, he said, um, Gavin, I'd like you to come and speak this year at Medicine Unboxed, and I'd like you to go wild. <laughs> I said, and I, I emailed back, I said, what exactly do you mean? He said, I'd like you to talk about, about wonder, about humanity, about exploration, about social justice, and of course, necessarily about Frankenstein. <laughs> so that was my remit, and um, over the course of the next 15 or 20 minutes, that's what I'm going to try and do. So, um, first of all, wonder. Now, near my general practice office in Edinburgh, there's a park which is lined with cherry trees and elm trees that undergo the most astonishing, beautiful annual transformations. Sometimes when I'm on my way into the office, I stop for a while and watch them. And similarly, between home visits, as I pedal around the city, I stop at one of the benches and just watch the way that they're changing. You know, winter brings a lot of storms, and recently the storms have been so severe that some of the biggest elms have been blown over. And when they keel over, their roots rip up giant coffin-sized gashes in the earth, and the council comes along with chainsaws and trucks and takes them all away. Spring, spring brings this sort of thickening of the, the branches and the twigs with this green so enchanting that I always realize that's why some cultures view green as the color of heaven. And also the cherry trees come out in this most extraordinary blossom. There's sort of pink, which interweaves itself into the grass. And just to take a stroll through the park is to get fetid, essentially, in a kind of confetti of petals. Summertime is, uh, is an also a very lovely time to sit in this park near my office. There's always people having barbecues. It's right next to the university. Uh, babies playing on mats, acrobats, stringing ropes between the trunks and teetering across them. But my favorite season is this one, autumn. And I've often sat on that bench you can see right there. And when you, as you sit there, you get these gorgeous drifts of um, auburn, gold, yellow, gathering around your feet, and the air is very pellucid and brittle. I've been appreciating this park for between 20 and 30 years because it's adjacent to the medical school where I trained in medicine. And when I was 18, I walked through drifts of those leaves right at the start of first year, first term medical school to a biochemistry class that I have never forgotten. A biochemistry class where I had something approaching a revelation, I think, of the intricacy, the wonder, the interconnectedness of all life. And it had a particularly inauspicious beginning. Projected on one wall, there was a complex diagram 
of a hemoglobin molecule. And this is a part of the hemoglobin molecule. In the lecture, the biochemistry lecture, pointed out that the most important bit of the hemoglobin molecule, as far as we were concerned, was a thing called the porphyrin ring, which held an iron atom at the center. And uh, the porphyrin rings are essential. They're the gantry upon which all life is suspended because chlorophyll, which captures the sun's energy, and apart from uh, the exception of deep submarine thermal vents, um, is necessary for all life on Earth. So thanks to porphyrin rings, life on Earth as we know it is possible. Thanks to Caspar Henderson's book, actually, I'm aware that octopuses have copper at the center of their porphyrin rings. But yet, chlorophyll has magnesium at the center of its, and we have iron at the center of ours. And each hemoglobin molecule is composed of four leaves, like a four-leafed clover, of assemblies of amino acids cradling a porphyrin ring. Now, the biochemistry lecturer explained that when oxygen binds at the heart of each ring to the iron, um, it reddens like an autumn maple leaf. He also explained that when the oxygen is released from the cradle of the porphyrin ring, it turns a darker, almost apostolic purple. And it's, you know, you might be thinking, so far, so biochemical. Like, where is the uh, revelation of intricacy, wonder, interconnectedness of life in all of this? But then he went on, he said, as an oxygen molecule binds, it pulls a tiny atomic lever called a histidine, which causes the other three cradles to, to, to take up oxygen. So this was the first revelation of the interconnectedness. The first revelation was quite astonishing to me, that, but also obvious, that molecules cooperate with one another to sustain life and to render life possible. I mean, it should have been obvious, but somehow it was startling. And he said the same thing happens in reverse. As the first oxygen leaves the cradle of the hemoglobin, the lever pulls, and the other three leaves unclasp and release their oxygen. Now, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have gifts in 1993 when I was at um, first year biochemistry. But um, I began to imagine this switching, watching the, watching the screen in that lecture. Imagining those shapes shifting as they gathered oxygen in the capillaries of my lungs, and then those cradles releasing again as they pass through the capillaries of my brain, my heart, my liver. There's a kind of transformation happening moment to moment through every tissue of my body, as vital, as perennial as those transformations that go on in the leaves of the trees outside. Then he said something really, quite truly incredible. He said, the more that the tissues are starved of oxygen, the more acidic the blood becomes. And the acid deforms the biochemical structure of the hemoglobin to make it release more oxygen. So this was the second revelation of the morning. Again, inescapable, improbable at the same time. That blood and the our hemoglobin is 
exquisitely calibrated to meet the exact oxygen requirements across different tissues at one and the same time. Then he started to move on and started to explain the ways in which fetal hemoglobin within the womb is subtly enhanced to be able to draw oxygen across the placenta. But I was already so caught up in that first revelation that I'm afraid I hardly heard him. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that at that moment in that, uh, what could have been considered a quite a dreary biochemistry class, um, I had a revelation. I sort of felt the air charged with reverence, which ties into what we were discussing this morning. We were looking at these connections between um, ideas of God, ideas of uh, divinity, and ideas of wonder. And I think that concept, that human concept of reverence is very much the, the, the chain that binds those together. That sense of wonder to me felt like a fascination mingled with joy. So a fascination alloyed with joy at the fact that such balance can exist amid the tumult of body chemistry. Our, our, our biochemistry is like a seething mass of chemical reactions constantly going on moment to moment at the molecular level. And the feeling of realizing what happened in the, in the molecules of my hemoglobin expanded out to realize the same sorts of processes were going on in the chemistry of my neurons, my digestion, my immunity, my muscles. Everything seemed inexpressibly precious, I think, and at the same time, precarious. And that revelation started me thinking about the commotion of ceaseless change that's going on moment to moment in all of our lives and also between our lives. I mean, to be alive is really to be in a series of processes of perpetual change. We're growing, we're healing, we're learning, we're aging. And it's connected also to the idea that there's this great cavalcade of the cosmos going on around us. You know, the universe is, universe is expanding, the galaxy is spinning. Um, the earth is turning through its orbit, the moon gets more distant with every year. All these things are constantly whirling around us, within our blood and out with our blood. You know, we've got a tilt in the planet's spine, which Casper mentioned to do with thanks to the moon, which gives us the swing of the seasons. Life's origins, as we know it, are dependent on the tides, and more than a trillion tides have already rinsed the shores of the earth. So nothing ever stays the same for long. It's a truism that, that some people perceive as a consolation, other people perceive as a curse. And, um, and I would suggest that we embrace it as more of a consolation. Now, it's only recently that Western philosophies have ditched the idea that actually the cycles of the body within us our physiological cycles are intimately connected to the cycles of the cosmos spinning around us. You know, the Renaissance doctors called the human body the microcosmos, the microcosmos. And they believed that the four elements of matter were intimately connected to the four humors that sustained life, and that we could understand, you know, a huge part of training in medical school for centuries was just prognosis. Treatment was an afterthought. Treatments weren't very effective. People went to doctors often because they wanted to know what would happen, not how to resolve it. And they went to doctors to find out what would happen, and the doctors looked at the stars. 
So I hope we've moved a little bit beyond that. But I prefer to hold on to the, the kernel of that vision, that the body is a kind of landscape we can explore geographically. And it's also the body, the body and the body's health is intimately connected to the environment that around us. The health of the ecosystems around us are intimately connected to our own health. And the health of the ecosystems around us will ultimately determine the future of ourselves as a human community. And we can, that, that loss of that vision of the body is intimately connected to the cycles of change that are going on around us. We can maybe date back to Descartes and that dualism that I think therefore I am. But Descartes, paradoxically, was the last Western philosophy to count wonder as a principal human emotion. After him, um, wonder kind of has to take a back seat. I'm sure those two different revelations of his are connected. I like to reclaim that or arrogate that back to ourselves. They say that thinking more about the fact that the salt in your blood was one sea spray and that next year, you know, you might pee it out and next year it could take up residence somehow in the blood of your neighbor is quite a wonderful thought. The water that is right now bathing each of your brains once fell as rain on primordial landscapes surged in the swell of long-gone oceans and will do the same again for eons to come. So from that perspective, the body is a kind of flowing stream or a burning fire and no two of its moments are ever really the same. And many of those changes that our bo human bodies go through are, are wondrous. Um, they're also inevitable. You know, we start out in the womb with uh, gills and tails. And uh, when we're born at the moment of birth, our hearts recontour themselves to accommodate that first flush of oxygen as the hemoglobin takes up. Those cradles of porphyrins take up all the oxygen of our first breath. So we can't help but change form. Many of them, in many ways that we, we can't really quite comprehend. And much of my work as a physician, both in general practice or in emergency medicine, is to take advantage of those changes that aid us and try to slow or inhibit or restrain those other changes that would constrain us. Now Descartes' other emotions, apart from wonder, were love, hatred, desire, joy, and sadness. He just had six. He thought all the others were just um, variants of those six. And I'd argue that perhaps wonder of those six, perhaps wonder is the most deeply human of all those emotions because it has no immediate obvious connection with utilitarianism. You know, it does lead to furthering of the interests of our communities and our societies, of course. Um, it gives us restless curiosity and it encourages us in that wonderful etymological sense of encourage, which means with heart. So it charges or infuses that reverence or that with heart into the endeavors that we, we, um, we attempt in, in, in our lives. And it also expands the boundaries of the self out into this wider cosmic um, frame of reference. You know, if you think of life as a seething, inconceivably complex set of relationships, dependent relationships, all the way from the biochemical all the way up to the celestial, um, it's really wonderful. Now, I've taken a, a very brief stab 
um, at describing for you a personal experience of wonder that I had um, many years ago now, more than half my life ago now. And it is very difficult to put those kinds of experiences onto a balance sheet and tabulate their value and say that they were, um, they were, they were useful because they, they infused my life with something that was subsequently particularly useful. But they've undoubtedly directed my choices. And what experiences like that do, I think, is render the world around us a place where it's easier to feel that charge of reverence, to feel at one with a universe in the sense of universe rather than a pluriverse or a multiverse, that we are part of a universe and intimately interdependent as such. And it's also the aim, I think those kinds of experiences that I uh, think I was lucky enough to feel in a biochemistry lecture theater um, is the aim of many of the rituals of religions. Uh, Thoreau has been mentioned already a couple of times today. You know, he was a bit of a misanthrope, refused to pay his taxes, lived in a shack in the woods. He had this wonderful, tremendous, unshakable sense of the glory, the wonder of being alive. He, he wrote, as did um, another of my heroes from Cheltenham, Edward Wilson, polar explorer, that he would rather take a walk through the woods than go to a church service because he felt more that charge of devotion and reverence just in a simple woodland. Now, how do, we, how do I bring that idea of wonder into the practice of medicine? And I very much see myself as both a doctor and a writer, and I spend half of my week doctoring, seeing patients, and I spend half my week uh, writing, trying to summon experiences, summon different kinds of reflections, and articulate them in a way that other people will appreciate and enjoy. So, medical work itself is, is utterly uh, Sisyphean. You know, there's never, there's never going to be an end to it. There are always more patients. Um, there's always more problems that you can do. But doctors would do very well to hold on to the idea that it's also a great privilege. Ultimately, I think that it's, we would be better to see medicine as an alloy of science with kindness, which is, in fact, the motto of the Royal College of General Practitioners, I should say, science with kindness, as opposed to, I said, I mentioned I worked in emergency medicine too sometimes, and um, the motto of which is, we always heal the sick. <laughs> so um, <laughs> let's, let's hear it for kindness. So, and, and general practice is also about a very modest, daily, methodical attempt to ease the suffering and postpone death. Now, it's well known that that sense of kindness that doctors often feel, and we hope to encourage among doctors, it's well known that sense of kindness can be exhausted and burned out, either when we lose the sight of the value of the individual before us or because of just sheer pressure of numbers and the um, incommensurable demand, really. And I don't want to propose that we need to do anything particularly special as clinicians, because this is just as relevant for nurses and physiotherapists as it is for doctors. Um, I don't think clinicians need to do anything particularly special to infuse practice with that kind of wonder or reverence, but 
I do think that we need to talk about it more and allow ourselves to be open to it, and it comes. Now, I'm going to see if my slides are working. I want to quote the psychotherapist Carl Rogers. Ah, yes, here we go. There's a peculiar satisfaction in really hearing someone. It is like listening to the music of the spheres because beyond the immediate message of the person, no matter what that might be, there is the universal. When I can really hear someone, it puts me in touch with him. It enriches my life. Now, it's rare, I would say, to manage to hold on to that in the depths of a busy clinic. And, and Michelle talked very beautifully about how too many of our doctors don't look us in the eye and their hands are shaking when they're addressing our deepest existential crises that we face in life. But if we're aware of this as a perspective and aware that when you're listening to your patient, that's your job, you have no other duty, you have no other role in the world than to sit and listen at that very moment, it can deepen and enrich your satisfaction with the work and also make you a far more effective therapist or clinician. It reminds me very much of this wonderful line from William Carlos Williams, who was a GP who then became a pediatrician and also a very famous poet um, in New Jersey. And um, he wrote in his exquisite, tiny little memoir about his medical work, The Practice. He said, often I have, after I have gone into my office harassed by personal perplexities, fatigued physically and mentally, after two hours of intense application to the work, I come out at the end completely rested, and I mean rested, ready to smile and to laugh as if the day were just starting. <laughs> now, I would like to have some of that. <laughs> and um, I have to say, although I, I completely empathize and understand the ripple of laughter, that I've had that experience. And I don't have it at every clinic. You know, I see about, oh, what do I see? I see about 100 patients a week face to face. And I certainly don't have that experience at the end of every clinic. But I have had it at the end of some clinics. And it's useful, it's that opening that I mentioned, how we open ourselves to that wonder or that reverence that can allow that to happen more often. When you really feel you're doing what you were trained to do what your profession is, you're professionally engaged, intellectually engaged, emotionally engaged, creatively engaged in the act of a therapeutic encounter. That's what you get at the end. You don't get exhausted. Um, Carlos, uh, William Carlos Williams or Carl Rogers, you know, are not saying anything particularly new or 20th century in this. It goes all the way back to if you have, as I have, plowed through the writings of Hippocrates, you come out with these wonderful lines like that. For where there is love of man, there is also love of the art. Two and a half thousand years ago, there's somebody writing about medicine in a way that recognizes that, that human engagement face-to-face -face with somebody who is suffering in some sense and that you have some expertise that you hope will be able to help ease that suffering can, can be, a, can be an, an experience, a therapeutic encounter that's, that, that enhances your love of man, your sense of yourself in that universe of humanity, rather than a pluriverse or a multiverse. This was touched on um, 
very much by uh, John Berger in his wonderful book about general practice uh, that he wrote in the 60s, where he, he, he tried to look at that idea. Why do doctors get burned out? Why do they get compassion fatigue when the job itself is so privileged and that the knowledge that they have is so useful? And he says, I would suggest that one of the fundamental reasons why so many doctors become cynical and disillusioned is precisely because when the abstract idealism is worn thin, they become uncertain about the value of the actual lives of the patients they're treating. It's quite a heavy load to put on the doctor. But I think there is a real kernel of truth also in that, that when medical and clinical engagements can be recharged with that sense of how important it is for that individual that you are fully engaged, then that is a tremendous um, antidote against compassion fatigue. And perhaps um, that is something that Michelle's uh, doctor with the shaky hands had lost sight of somehow. And it's not just, this isn't important just for clinical medicine or, or nursing practice or physiotherapy practice. Um, it's important for all of us as an electorate, as a demos, as clinicians, as citizens, in terms of thinking about how our decisions are influenced by how much we value the lives of other people around us. Now, recently a patient told me our consultant opened a consultation saying, without conversation, point to where it hurts. <laughs> like uh, this is Durer's famous self-portrait that he sent to his physician, asking his physician to comment. Um, but this was in ancient Greece, you know, this was, um, this, wasn't this, this was in Renaissance Germany, but, but this is a patient that I spoke to who had this happen to them last month. That doctor said to them, without conversation, point to where it hurts. And I'd argue that, that reverence and wonder can be an, a really good antidote to that point where it hurts school of medicine. Another of Hippocrates' um, great comments was this one, in every social relation, be fair, for fairness will be of great service. So I'm nearly finished um, this brief talk. I hope I've taken in some of the uh, themes that Sam was keen that I talk on today. Um, so I think we touched on the idea the body can be a kind of sacred landscape, really, that we can explore new vistas of it, new perspectives on the connection between being human, being humane, also the privileges and the challenges of medicine and the fundamental humanistic uh, principle that each individual has a worth and that when we open ourselves to that, we get burned out less often. Prosperity and knowledge is something that should really be shared rather than hoarded. Uh, Rachel, Ca Rachel Carson, the environmentalist, um, who wrote Silent Spring, I'm sure she's familiar to many of you, she said, if I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the christening of all children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout life. And she drew out that sense of wonder to ask us whether the environmental implications of the way we behave 
can be recalibrated by that wonder. The more clearly we focus our attention on the wonders and realities of the universe, the less taste we shall have for its destruction. Yeah, I hope so. So, um, the power of the science that we've been talking a little bit about today and the power to know that this is what happens to a hemoglobin molecule is unparalleled in the history of humanity. I mean, no other culture until this sort of um, late 20th century Western scientific culture has managed to drill down into the nature of matter to such an extent that we can now reveal that is how hemoglobin works. And um, that sense of wonder, can, that sense of amazement at science can actually blind us and make us think that's all we need. In the biochemistry classroom, I had this kind of unfolding of the possibilities of understanding how the body's mechanism is put together. But if that wonder and that curiosity mixed with awe and mixed with joy is not alloyed with a sense of kindness, then what you get is a kind of intoxication of science. And the moral consequence of that is what you get with uh, Frankenstein. <laughs> None but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. In other studies, you go as far as others have gone before you and there's nothing more to know but in a scientific pursuit, there is continual food for discovery and wonder. So this is a line that Victor Frankenstein says near the beginning of the book, before the monster that he has created with his incredible and unparalleled and unprecedented understanding of physiology creates the monster that pursues him. And so we have to bear in mind what, um, that kind of effect of hubris, I think, uh, that a loss of compassion can lead to and a loss of looking at the moral consequences of our science. So clinical practice, to conclude, is really a wonderful alloy of knowledge, scientific knowledge with kindness, and we need to build an ecology and a society to support human satisfaction, I think, rather than just um, scratching our curiosity and paying attention to and fostering and nurturing our sense of wonder in context can do that. Um, right back in, uh, in the Socratic dialogues, it says, all philosophy begins in wonder. And I think that's true, but it also points out that wonder is just a beginning. And uh, what we do with our sense of wonder is what really matters. Thanks very much. <laughs>